0: Welcome to Entrepreneurship with Peter Christo. Today, I interview Alan Aaron, a distinguished professional with a remarkable 35-year career in technology and business. Alan's journey includes roles as an entrepreneur, venture capital investor, management consultant and engineer. With a decade of experience at renowned firms like McKinsey & Co., he co-founded Technology Venture Partners a $240 million venture capital fund that backed 26 early-stage tech companies achieving an astounding $700 million in equity and grants and three $1 billion plus exits. Beyond that, Allen founded a fast growing energy services company and helped secure grants for up to a million dollars for 28 tech business startups during his five year advisor role in the Accelerating Commercialization program. He serves as a defense industry advisor for the Department of Defense and is a general partner at Access Capital Ventures. Now, you'll have to agree that is an impressive bio. Uh, I've gotten to know Alan recently, and I found him to be a very measured, intelligent, and attentive person, excellent to work with, and very much open to new ideas, new ventures, and has a deep technical understanding. Please enjoy my interview with Mr. Alan Aron. anyway, all right, well, let's let's kick it oh. off. Um, welcome to the podcast, Alan. Uh, thank you so much for for agreeing to, to do this. Um, why don't we kick it off and, and just, um, you know, maybe you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about uh, what you've been doing and what you're doing now.
1: Thanks, Peter, and i um, humbled to be number 10. Number
0: 10. Um, 10. Oh, you, you know. Bo, Bo, um, Bo Derek, get your heart out. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. Um, so, so I'll tell you a little bit about what I do now. Is that is that your preference? Yes, please. Um, just into, so I, I do three things at the moment. Um, most interesting is working with some startups, mainly startups and early stage tech companies on their boards and as an advisor, which is is always fun and really interesting to work with passionate, smart people. Um, second thing is I'm a general partner in a venture capital fund called Access Capital Ventures, and I think we've done 12 investments in that fund, um, and the main thing that I spend my time on is a contracting role with the Department of Defense in what's called the Office of Defense Industry Support, or OTIS, in which um, I am a Defense Industry Advisor. Um, there's about 20 of us around the country. Um, Generally, my colleagues have served. I haven't served in the forces, but you know, I bring a different dimension, I guess, to the role. And the purpose of the office and the business advisors is to identify and assist for 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 defence's benefit um, companies that can contribute to a sovereign supply chain, mm-hmm. predominantly. That doesn't exclude companies that might export. Um, defence-related or dual-use products overseas, but it um, it's definitely focused on um, benefiting defence with Australian capabilities.
0: Right. Okay. So we might kick off in that area because I find it interesting also as an ex-serviceman myself. So, so what are the, I guess what are the? What are the? You know, I guess how how has the industry evolved? I remember when I was in in the 80s and then the 2000s. Um, you know, this this was not a thing. Well, maybe in the 2000s, but I just didn't see it. Certainly in the 80s, the closest I got to anything resembling innovation was being in a a command post looking at a war simulation uh, like a game. Uh, as the you know the the various officers had to come in and do their roles with the fictitious uh, divisions and troops and all that sort of stuff. Um, maybe give us a bit of an overhead uh, overview of, of what what you can obviously uh, talk about. Um,
1: so uh, I mean, my my experience was a little different um, in defence. So one of my very early roles when I first graduated in aerospace as an engineer was designing. The basic trainer for the RAAF. So back in around um, early early nineteen eighties, yeah. um, the Air Force acquired a number of basic trainer aircraft, turbo prop, two seat aircraft. And that was the, the um, C,
0: what was it the seat?
1: Uh, it ended up being the Pilatus.
0: The Pilatus. Um, okay.
1: But uh, there was a, a ten there was a design competition prior to the acquisition, where the government aircraft factories down at Fisherman's Bend in Victoria. Uh, were charged with designing effectively the same aircraft. So I was on, as a baby engineer, I was on the design team um, designing a basic RAAF trainer. And I think that was probably, in my experience, the last time Defence said, you know, we're looking at potentially buying something from Australia. In the end, they didn't buy Mm. an Australian-designed aircraft and they bought a Pilatus and I think that was kind of, in my mind, pretty much the end of the Australian aviation industry. Right. And then you fast forward, you know, 40-something years, it's probably been the last seven or eight years at least that the, the government and defence have sort of had a mission of si- strengthening sovereign supply chains. And, and you know, obviously after COVID or through COVID, it became apparent that we can't just, you know, order on eBay and get the next, um, you know, tank or, or you know, whatever, so delivered get a, on a ship. You can
0: get a tank on eBay. I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know what I mean, right? So it became apparent that we needed to strengthen our own capabilities because in time of stress, if we didn't have sovereign capability to produce basic stuff, we, you know, it's, a, it's an exposure. It's an exposure to our national security. Um, but it actually predated COVID. I think COVID just proved to everybody that the thesis around building sovereign capability is right. But at the same time... You know, those people who are charged with actually doing the work in defense, um, you know, the war fighters and the people that are determining capability requirements are saying, well, we need this stuff now and we can't afford to build industry capability because we don't have time to do it because of potential emerging threats, right? So it's this tension, I suppose, between the desire to build a strong sovereign capability and supply chain and getting the capabilities in the field quickly. And so I guess what we try to do is rather than sift through thousands of companies who may or may not be able to contribute to the supply chain, we try to focus on a smaller number where we think they truly can contribute to the supply chain and be part of the, you know, the, 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 the 500 billion between 250 and $500 billion over the next decade, depending on how you define yep. total expenditure versus capital equipment, which is a lot of money, like, you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars in capital acquisitions and sustainment. Right? So everybody feels like there's a piece of that for, you know, local company. Uh, there probably isn't, but we're trying to identify those companies that can play a role in the defence supply chain.
0: So, so to kind of unpack that a little bit, so, I can imagine there would be some innovators who have sort of come up with a you know some sort of a product or some sort of a, a capability um, that potentially has uh, an impact at you know the front line and logistics or whatever other aspect of the military you're looking at. It, it, where do you draw the line between hey, this is a great idea and they've made a prototype, and actually being able to pr- to uh, produce, uh in industrial quantities of the widget that's going to go out into the field because that's a whole other activity so is the capability around the production of that capability or is it the the delivery of that capability
1: so i think you nailed it actually peter which is is great so you know sometimes the messaging and the reality are, are, are kind of not don't quite align. so you know for a long time the messaging was you know come one come all we want anybody that can contribute to um, assisting defence achieve its mission, you know, we love you all. Mm -hmm. I think the reality though is that it's one thing to have great innovation if you can't scale defence, you know, the public sector generally is quite risk averse, so if you can't scale, you're probably not going to get it. But the other side is, you might have great capability, but you have no innovative you know, indigenous or local IP right. that you can contribute to add. There still may be a role in sustainment, you know, maintenance, et cetera, but it's hard then to say, well, we're going to get you to build, you know, an armored personnel carrier if you've never actually had any skills in doing that before, even though you might have the facilities. So I think one of the interesting challenges is taking those two groups of companies and the right companies in those two groups and saying well if there's a match with the capability that, that the warfighter requires and there's a ability to reduce risk by being able to scale to a to a meaningful enough scale that you could support you know a requirement well into the future then that's the ideal and mm. and i think you could look at two separate groups of companies those innovative sort of disruptors and those um kind of challengers who are sort of moving up the line in terms of capabilities but maybe don't have enough scale and say you could either make matches between them or you could you could you know kind of enable the innovators to scale or you could enable the the challengers to absorb IP from universities or academic or whatever
0: right okay and and so if i'm reading you right are you suggesting that because of the immediate requirement, particularly in the current geopolitical yep. environment, the tendency would be, you know, what's as close to off the shelf in terms of not only I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the bullet, but I'm also going to get the supply of the bullets because there's no point in me just getting one magazine. <laughs> <I> need, <Right.
1: laughs> and again, you're, you're absolutely right. So there's that tension. So, you know, defence, I think I've only had a few years experience directly in defence and prior to that was a whole bunch of other experiences around it. But um, over the last at least a decade, defence has moved into an environment where it, it, it generally acquires capital equipment and large-scale maintenance sustainment services from a, a small number of large, typically multinational or American and you know friendly European countries or, you know, South Korean as well. Um, So most if you know, probably 90% of procurement goes through these large prime contractors and they in turn offset um, their Australian industry capability and, you know, kind of um, uh, sort of workforce obligations with smaller companies. And they will often have um, the ability to take local companies that have strong IP back into their own international global supply chain so the model for australian defense is you know defense is typically not a customer for a small um, innovative company right um, but it may be that one of the primes that is one a very significant project for defense is the customer or it may be one of the people that supply the primes is the customer but it's unlikely that that small com- company will ever really talk to defense directly about it contract yeah so it's a it's a model that's evolved probably at least over the last decade and you know what it does that manages defence's risk um, by working with large global suppliers but it also enables some degree of local industry content and capability creation
0: right so that makes sense when it comes to i guess physical uh equipment like you know bushmasters and whatever um, does the same thing apply with cyber cyber uh, so if you know if i had you know pete's cybersecurity dudes and we are you know the best the best of breed um, what would be the challenge there in being able to deliver that so uh, outside a, the prime
1: yeah so cyber is an interesting area because it is one of those critical technologies and defense recognizes it as one of the priority domains as well um and, and it's probably Interestingly, it's probably one of the, um, one of those domains wh- which is most accessible by a local um, innovative company. The, the constraints are though that, you know, even in the IT domain, you know, you have to have a platform which is interoperable with other systems and sure. with uh, allies systems. And, um, you know, it has to be pretty rigorously tested to ensure it in itself doesn't contain vulnerabilities and you know it's got to have the right level of support so whilst you know it would be great to see really innovative australian cyber tech going into the defense platforms even that is is a is is a challenge directly to defense and i think again it you know most of these platforms are also provided by prime contractors be they specialists in that area or or generalists you know yeah you know, multi-portfolio product. So, so, again, I think there's a better shot for some of those companies to actually penetrate, but, again, it's not likely to be directly with defence.
0: Yeah. Would you differentiate between some sort of um operational capability in the cyberspace versus the equivalent of, say, a special forces type capability?
1: So in terms of procurement, I think it is a bit different um, because I guess the way I look at the way Defence procures services and products, is there's three three broad kind of um, buckets. The biggest one by far is, you know, acquiring and procuring through primes, and that comes through um, a group within Defence called CASG, the Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group, which yep. is a team of people dedicated to professional procurement yep. of Product against the specification, and and I don't know the numbers, but my guess is like ninety five percent of procurement goes through CASG. Sure. So you know you have a structured tender process for a project that's defined by someone with the capability requirement. And and Cash G is responsible for getting the best outcome yep. in terms of risk and price and capabilities etc. And that's by far the largest procurement. The the second would be that capability manager, the, the special forces or the you know the, the 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 kind of the commander in the field or whatever it is that has a bit of a discretionary budget and knows what they need and they need it quickly and they just say, you know Peter, I know you can deliver this and I have a bit of a budget for my limited use requirement. And you may get a contract to satisfy that, you know, in a reasonable time frame. Hmm. But the challenge is, it's hard to make that scalable. Sure. Because if it becomes a really big contract, it then goes back into the procurement arm, and then you've got to put a requirement spec together and take. Yeah, it I,
0: that I, I, I've been there, and we'll leave this topic for in a moment. But but I'll, I'll <laughs> my own experience was, we would get, you know, when we went out into the field, not that our equipment was necessarily bad. But it was just old, um, or it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't. I don't know. It just didn't have the. In some cases, it was more about how sexy it looked, to be honest. But yeah. but a lot of guys would go off and get their own boots. They'd get their own their own webbing. They'd get their own particular clips and harnesses that they needed for their weapons and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and you know, somebody made the the comment. You know, when it comes to resupply, you're screwed because. You know, if that breaks out in the field, then yep. you're not. Whereas if you want another sling bag or, you know, um, you, you'll get it. You know, you need another yep. backpack, you'll get it. Um, Just in yeah. yeah, but <laughs> what I also uh, have, uh, I guess, been exposed to without going too much details. When you're in the war fighting role and you're actually in, in a in an in operational environment, um, you know the you know the, the quartermaster's on the hook um, to get it from big borrow and steal it from wherever, whether it be cans of beans or or whatever. Um, they will circ- they will go around the system because they're you yep. know they're they're the, yeah
1: yeah that's right so it's so, i was going to deliver you've, it you've seen it in the field and you've seen i mean all the, the sleeping bags and stuff that that gets procured in sure. a very professional way and then there's these like well we just have to have a widget that looks better or does a better job or satisfies a particular requirement i don't care how you do it and i've got a little bit of money that i can pay for it mm-hmm. but the third avenue um is just recently been kind of overhauled or re re um, kind of um invented and so within defense there's a group um called uh, the defense science and technology group yep. STG. yep so they're i would say kind of look like a mini CSIRO and they they work on longer term projects and they've got a couple of thousand engineers and scientists working on sort of long medium-term strategic projects that are innovative um, and there were previously two funding mechanisms that defense used to uh, kind of encourage innovation. One was called Defence Innovation Hub, uh, and one was called the Next Generation Technology Fund. And both sort of like leveraged um, defence of science and technology capability. And in total, there were a few billion dollars worth of funding for that. Um, those two mechanisms have have been Sort of terminated, and there's a new entity called the uh, Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, yep. um, which is being run through DSTG, which is again a few billion dollars worth of funding. The only difference, or the main difference, is that uh, they define themselves now as only funding intellectual capability which has a pathway to commercialization. So, whereas before, those other funding mechanisms may have funded something cause it was kind of cool or it just right. advances learning and allows someone else to integrate some knowledge or IP development. Now they're saying, look, if we give you that first $250,000, it'll only be because we think in two years time, there's a contract that's gonna be there for X million dollars to supply these things to defense. So that's a really big improvement because otherwise, you know, it was kind of like, although it was a contract, it was kind of grand and, and, and right. you know, a lot of companies got them but didn't actually go anywhere with them. So this could be a really impressive improvement if they can deliver it.
0: Yeah, well, particularly if they're using the term commercialization, I'm not sure what how they're framing that, but, you know, if I'm delivering something and I can, um, you know, relatively easily go for the rest of the five eyes um, and now I've got something commercial rather than just relying on one check one month, you know, every quarter or whatever. Exactly. I get it.
1: And okay. having to prove that you actually can... Uh, Can ultimately uh, sustain yourself, even though you don't get a commercial contract when you main thunder.
0: Right, right. Yeah, because you know business needs diversity in its product range and its and its uh, customer base. Um, Yeah, exactly. So, this podcast is brought to you by Christie Partners, strategic advisors to assist you in commercialising your innovations. If you have an opportunity you seek to bring to market and need help with either going to market connecting with universities to access technology or raising capital or any other matter contact us on hello at christopartners.com why don't we leave that topic now so you can breathe a little bit um so so um, so you've moved now into the vc kind of realm um tell me a little bit about what your experiences are there uh, with some of the companies you've dealt with um, uh, I guess in the in the current ecosystem which which is unrecognizable from a venture capital yeah. perspective back in uh, the 2000s when I was you know trotting around with you know pitch club and all that sort of stuff which I'm I can't remember if I told you about but basically it was an yeah. event for entrepreneurs to pitch their opportunities to to the market but VC's um,
1: are out there it, yeah. it, 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 was, it,
0: was, it was like sharks tank shark tank with no TV cameras um, yeah,
1: but so what, so I've moved into VC. I've actually never thought I would, but I've I've moved back into VC. So okay, I'm um, just as a pot in history. You know, my my initial um, background, as I said, was aerospace. Um, then I moved into IT um, with IBM, and then I picked up my MBA, and then I went into management consulting for about eight years with McKinsey's. And then after that, in the early 90s, I actually started a VC fund alongside um, a partner, uh, a guy named John Murray, and he and I ran a company called Technology Venture Partners, and TVP managed about $240 million of superannuation money. We invested in 26 companies over about 20-ish years. Um, We had some really good outcomes in terms of, uh, we had a semiconductor company Uh, Called Peregrine Semiconductor, which was NASDAQ listed and then bought on market and Mm. uh, most people don't know they produced Semiconductors that flew in just about every western satellite and they were made in homebush And no one knew the company Um, We had a a fintech company that that got sold for again about a billion dollars And also we were the seed investor in a company called Threatmetrics that was bought by Lexus Nexus for about a billion dollars Which back then was big money um nowadays it's still still big big, but you know the exits that you know if you think about a canva yeah uh, you know we're talking about multiples but it was a lot tougher back then you know even though we had a fairly big fund and we were probably one of about half a dozen kind of mainstream investors you know the 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 ecosystem was fairly immature and we went through the dot-com crash we went through the gfc and it's a tough environment so we stopped investing in about 20, uh, 2011, something like that. And then I did my own startup for a few years. I went back to uni, did a research degree in, uh, in electrical engineering and uh, sustainable energy. And I co-founded a small embedded energy company, which I then sold my stake back to my co-founder. And then I spent about five years in accelerating commercialization, which you've just come out of. Yep. And I worked and I helped about, I think I had 28 companies um, that I, got grants for and worked with over five years. And then I did the new fund, Access Capital Ventures, with three partners who are all ex- accelerating commercialization. Um, and, um, and that next step into the defence realm.
0: Yeah. Okay. So basically, you split your time between the two—the defense stuff and the and the um yeah. uh, the the VC stuff. Yeah. And and what's so what's the? Because I guess there are VCs and there are VCs. My, there are VCs and there are VCs. Um, you sound uh, when you described it to me when we were having our conversation, a lot closer to kind of a stepping stone VC where you get involved. Um, and, and again, I'm sure that's not always, but you get involved. Um, uh enough to wet the palate, but then have some sort of a right to take them yeah. to to series a or whatever is you're going to do do you want to so, so the,
1: yeah the reason i never thought so technology venture partners back in the late 90s and and noughties was a very mainstream bc but you know like the industry was very immature back then Yep. um so you know we were doing seed rounds and series a rounds and then the model was to try to get companies into the US where the big money was. as so I spent a few years living and working in Silicon Valley. And, you know, as I said, we, we had some success with, with some great companies that we built, but we also had some tremendous values in, in the, mainly because there was not a lot of following follow on funding in Australia. So, you know, we were the biggest investor, you know, amongst, you know, half a dozen investors. Yep. We didn't we didn't have a big fund back then it was like the last one was 150 million so that that was what we did back then and so I didn't think I'd go back into venture but having spent the five years with AC um, and during that five years we had about 475 companies that got funded by accelerating commercialization grants so they'd already received a grant and received some matching capital whether it was equity or customer contract or debt shareholder loans whatever so they'd already passed that very early stage. They had a product, they typically have revenue. We said, it's it's such a waste for these guys not to have a pathway to get funded. So right. we created ESVCLP, early stage VCLP, which is a small fund. Um, and our model is simply to identify those AC companies that are doing a round with a bigger company, as a bigger VC as a lead and say, we would like to work with you and put a bit of money into the round. If you want us to be active, we will. If you want us to be passive, we will. We're founder friendly. We don't drive the terms. We just want to be part of that round because we know that those companies have right. gone through due diligence and I'm dealing with one of your AC companies now, as you know, yep. and I think, I think that will hopefully become an investment. Yep. So I think our model's really good because you know, we we just want to participate in the round and, and be there for the founders to help them wherever we can. So it's not a big time commitment for us. Um, because our deal flow is predefined, it's yep. only those companies in the AC universe, yep. and I think we're we'll, we're going to do quite well in terms of the deals we've done.
0: So you're going to do that for IGP, I presume, the Industry Growth Program.
1: Well, we haven't really contemplated that yet. It, I don't. It, it won't fall into the current AC Ventures fund, I don't think. Um, but if our AC Ventures model works, and I'm pretty confident it will, yep. and where investors have an appetite, and I'd love to be able to look at it. I mean, there's a lot to there's a lot for the industry growth program to prove mm-hmm. yet, mm-hmm. Um, in terms of its operating model and the teams that it creates.
0: Oh o- o- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, can, can I ask uh, on a couple of fronts? So, you've worked in Silicon Valley and you've worked in Australia in the in the capital markets and the you know the the startup space. What what are the differences? Like, what what are you? Are the, what are the contrasts? Even now in 2023, end of um, between not only the institutions versus the institutions here, the VCs, you know your cohort versus the ones here, and, and I guess the types of businesses that are that, that are coming to the door. I guess the posture that they have versus the posture that we mm. have, which I would argue is more hat in hand here, whereas over there they're saying, well, you know, get in or you know, get off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so there's so there's so much you can talk about in that question. Right? Yeah. It depends on dimension you want to go down and i mean just the scale of the u.s I- even though we have more money under management in australia now in BC than ever before you know the scale of u.s venture versus australian venture is is just dramatically different i mean when you get to a fund size in venture of a few hundred million dollars almost by default you can't do early stage seed and early stage sales. and i know that you know our friends at the larger australian vcs will still say they'll do seed and early stage but the reality is they're looking for series a with an eye to a series b sure. if you're running a 500 or 300 million dollar fund you have to get 20 million dollars to work in a company because you can't do you can't do 200 1 million dollar deals right yeah. so even the though there's work. a lot of
0: it's the same work. It
1: doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work And if you get a massive return and you've got a million dollars in a in a company and you get a 10 times or a 15 times or a 20 times return You make 20 million bucks out of a 300 million dollar fund. So The economics are never going to be there. You you know, so you see these bigger funds now obviously looking for series a's and series b's um, Where they can get a big check which is totally rational, but it, it does um it does make you uh it, it does muddy the market in that you know policy makers and you know a lot of advisors still think that because there's so much money in the market every part of the market is well looked after but it's not like you know angels have formed angel networks but it's still really hard to raise that first half million dollars oh. and then if you want to raise that that pre-series a round of a million a million and a half too, um, you know there are a few funds out there, founders funds, etc., that will do it. But you know that sort of money is really expensive and very, very hard to get. And it, it just means that the the feedstock for the larger funds is is not as big as it should be. So there's still, in my mind, a gap in that market. Yeah. Um. So that's a big change. That's a big difference too from the U.S., where you know family offices and individuals and the network in Silicon Valley. Every guy that's made you know, 20 million bucks by being employee number seven at some startup that right. went public. You and I have never even heard of, right? right. They're investing and in seeding their mate's next venture. Right. So there's a whole ecosystem that works so much better in the Valley and in yep. the northeast of the US and in Texas now and in, in Denver. And, you know, like and we have Sydney and Melbourne, we have a little bit in Brisbane, a little bit in Adelaide and you know, a tiny bit in Perth, right? So we don't have that critical mass yet, even though we've got some really good professionally run bigger funds. So there's, you know, I I still, you know, I I work with very early stage companies, you know, at that seed stage where I might put in a couple of tens of thousands of dollars. And you try to get the you know, the hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars, and it's really hard.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Especially, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having a sniff around at the moment on, on the crypto business that I've got. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I'm trying to allocate a bit of time to that. And, and you know, the couple of doors that have slammed in my head as soon as I said the C word. Um, yes. <laughs> don't, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Like, but, but and, and I've got a good argument if you sit still long enough to hear it, but
1: I didn't well, even yeah. get that yeah. off. No, no, I, mean, I had the most, as I said to you, I had the most... In intelligible and an interesting <laughs> conversation about crypto with you than anybody in the previous three to four years Wait, right, i was so tempted,
0: that, i was tempted to put that up on my linkedin page because it meant a lot <laughs> to me because it's been a long journey trying to a learn I'm what i need to talk so many
1: people about crypto right and look you know again if you look at the professional investor community that there's there's some professional investors who will you know Look, be frank. We'll just take a punt, right? Sure. This is the next big thing. What's the downside if we stick a few million bucks into this? And if it comes off, even if it's gone in, no intellectual property, right. you know, an unproven management team, but you're in a hot area. And so if it comes off and you're just creating i hate to say it buy now pay later or crypto or whatever right you can it's a gold mine right but then every other you don't hear about every other deal in those hot areas that didn't make it but there are a few that will so that's one area but the other is the more um thesis or theme focused VCs that say, "Well, I believe that crypto is going to do this because there are these global trends, and it's not a fad. I'm not just getting on a bad wagon. I actually believe there's yeah. a thesis and and those are the guys. I think you know, if you get the first lot, good luck, and you you, you manage to get that one in a hundred. If you get the second lot, I think you've actually got a believer. Yeah, and you know the. The money is money, but it's great to have a believer behind you.
0: Absolutely, I might have to get some uh, some uh, advice uh, offline uh, on what I'm doing there from you, Alan. Um, can I? Can we pivot across to the renewable energy stuff that you did? What's uh, so? Did you do? So you did in renewable energy. Is there a defence application for this? Well, so
1: I'll be honest. So you know, I'm a fairly logical guy, and was an engineer, or am an engineer, and I was actually quite um unclear about the whole issue of climate change in fact most of my friends that see me today think you know you are very very different in your views about climate change you know 20 years ago because i'll be honest i, I hadn't i'd read the ipcc report i can't remember which one and if you managed to wade through the you know three thousand pages of it and actually come out with a conclusion good luck other than the fact that most scientists believe in climate change was a thing and um but i didn't see a simple you know kind of engineering matrix that proved to me that climate change was um i knew it was happening but you know it wasn't man-made and if it was man-made was it a real threat and if it was a real threat could we do anything about it so i went back to uni just because i was interested in climate change and rather than talk about stuff that i knew nothing about i thought if i'm going to learn about it I may as well do it in you know, sure. an academic term. so i did a masters by research. In electrical engineering, focusing on sustainable and renewable energy, and I convinced myself, or I was convinced that we, you know we do have a serious issue. I was probably 10 years too late, but you know it was still 13 years ago. So I'm kind of you know I'm in the middle of the trap. But you know we clearly do have a, a serious issue to address, and you know I'm, I'm not confident we may be able to address it through economic policy. Or through government regulation or through technology i'm not sure one of the one other combination of those three so i was quite interested i did it from an impact point of view not a career point of view but coincidentally at the point where i was finishing that um, an acquaintance of mine had a very traditional engineering uh, thermal engineering company and and wanted to expand the business and so we did that um, and we got into all sorts of capital equipment projects to implement sustainable energy systems, from fuel cells to sterling engines to cogeneration and tri-generation systems. Um, unfortunately, we, we were very reliant on using natural gas as a transitional fuel, and given, the, I have to say, the absence of Australian energy policy, which has driven Australia as the number one gas producer to having amongst the highest gas prices in the world, um, that sort of killed the business model. And the thing about natural gas, and I know it's a fossil fuel, but it is way, 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 way better than coal, right? right. And um, we could have had really cheap coal-fired, you know, um, peakers rather than uh, sorry, gas-fired peak plants rather than coal-fired base load, and we would have been way off, way better off environmentally and economically. But we've we've given all the upside to you know foreign yeah. um, gasic.
0: So. I heard an interesting comment from Elon Musk. He was being interviewed by Lex Friedman recently, and um, he said, interestingly, the future really is in um, battery technology. Because, um, for example, we, we run we, we run our um, our production on on peak load rather than yeah. some sort of you know. So it, it's it's silly to have these m- machines running at peak load when you. Peak load by t- <laughs> you know what I'm saying, by very definition is yeah. not a hundred percent of the time, right?
1: Well, there was a lot of modeling when I was doing my masters, there's a lot of modeling about just, you know, given Australia's geographic diversity, um, there's a lot of modeling around could we just get by by you know using wind energy, you know, supplemented with solar. Yep. Because we have this geographic diversity. And so every, you know, all the I hate to say it, all the the kind of the right-wing side of politics says, well, you know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And of course it doesn't, but it does somewhere, yeah. right? The wind may not be blowing in Sydney, but it's probably blowing in Adelaide or Broken Hill or somewhere. Right. And and similarly, you know, when we need the energy, it's typically when, you know, people get home in the afternoons or they you know, wake up in the mornings and then industri- industry needs it at all times. And so if you can manage a renewable resource backed up by a storage system, whether it's pumped hydro or it's batteries, uh, you know, then you actually have a great, you have a great solution. And so when I was with AC, for example, i worked with a company that did, you know, really quickly deployable solar PV arrays, a company called 5B, which I think is doing really well. Yep. Um, MGA Thermal up in Newcastle had a thermal energy storage system and they raised, you know, they raised a reasonable amount of venture capital to, to productize that technology. So there's, and I did another one called, um, Sikona, uh, which is a battery, te- an anode, uh, I think it's a uh, silicon doped anode technology for batteries. So, you know, accelerating commercialization, at least in my time, had a big role in energy technology as well. So at least three or four, maybe another couple that have, I did a, a, a marine one as well called Bombora. So, you know, it's a, it's a portfolio of technologies that can actually address the energy needs in Australia, which will be, on any dimension, cheaper. And less um, environmentally damaging than coal. So what coal is the worst. Yeah.
0: So what's holding it back is a policy.
1: Yeah, I think it's a lack of policy. Yeah, I mean, in 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 the, you know, and I'm not, I'm totally apolitical. So I, you know, I, I I I take a very serious interest in voting, but I don't vote for the same folks all the time. You know, we really had no energy policy in the previous regime, and I think. Um, you know, this government's better, but, you know, I don't think we've had clear guidance as to what what should drive uh, energy, the energy transition. Um, so I think it has been mainly policy. I think the technology is there and I don't think it should be prescribed um, by governments, but it should be encouraged. I was never in favour of, you know, a carbon price, even though the economists say that's the best way to um, to let the market sort it out. You know, we tax everything else. Why the hell not just tax carbon? Yep. Forget forget the carbon, forget the economic you know, mechanism. Just tax it. Yeah. In my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe um maybe we leave it there. Um, but I might just give you an opportunity to uh anybody listening who wants to get in touch with you, wants to learn more about what you're doing on either side of the um of the portfolio that you that you work in, um how, how they reach
1: out to you. Yeah, sure. Look, all, always happy to talk to people. Um, the thing about the Access Capital Ventures Fund is because we have a fairly constrained universe of companies, um, there are 475 or so that, that were done during my five years and there's another 75 or so, Peter, that were done during your three years or so. So there's about 550 companies yep. in our universe. We've made a dozen investments and we hope to make another eight or so. So if there's any companies that have had accelerating commercialization money that are interested, obviously delighted to talk to them with my VC hat on. If any anybody, entrepreneurs, et cetera, want to talk to me about you know, their startup journey, very happy to do that. And finally, if there's anyone aspiring or in the defense supply chain that wants to talk to me, happy on it, any of those three fronts. Probably best um, to email me using my my technology, I still have my old technology venture partner's email address, I can't give it up. So. It's, it's triple A R O N at T V P Tangavictapapa.com.au. All right.
0: Um
1: and just drop me an email and just, you know, say you want to buy me a coffee and I'd be delighted. It's
0: amazing how 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 many coffees have been purchased. Multi-million dollar coffees. I'll I'll include that information on the on the show notes. Um, Alan, mate, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, uh, good luck on the on the journey, and and uh, maybe we'll have you again uh, if this keep if this 100. Question, number one hundred number one. Okay, all right, I'll tag you for it, mate. I'll tag you for it. <laughs> okay, so that was Alan Aaron, who I think is the, the real deal in the entrepreneurship and innovation community. Uh, if you check out the show notes you'll see his email there feel free to reach out to him tell him where you heard him until next time this is entrepreneurship with peter cristo